Hello and welcome to the Historians Magazine podcast. My name is Chris and today I'm joined by James Ryan. James is a learning guide at Culloden Battlefield Visitor Centre with the National Trust for Scotland. James, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing not too badly. Um, visitor numbers are getting up. We're definitely getting into the tourist season, so bring it on. Awesome, awesome. Hard work is good work, right? Awesome. So, like I said in the intro, you work at uh, Culloden Battlefield Visitor Centre. What do you do there? What, what kind of things would people expect if they kind of turned up at your door uh, tomorrow morning? So my official job title is very, very wordy. It's Visitor Services Assistant in Engagement. I work with the engagement team and our job is basically to tell the story of Culloden. Uh, tell the story of the one hour that changed the course of history forever, setting it to what it is today. Um, I do this through both formal and informal learning, uh, taking people on battlefield tours, taking school groups around the museum, around the battlefield. We do a lot of um, outreach to schools. We do uh, military provision, some military groups who've uh, just come back from a campaign, if you will, come to effectively get back to modern life by coming and we give them battlefield tours. We also see people from all across the world, thousands and thousands of overseas visitors uh, come to our tiny little museum in our tiny little battlefield. Um, and we just tell them the story, tell them the story of Bonnie Prince Charlie, of the Jacobites, of the last stand that they took. Awesome. That sounds, that sounds like good fun to be fair. I know work is always work, but it's nice if you can, uh... If you can enjoy it along the uh, along the way, um. So, just for a bit of context, um. Obviously, we've mentioned Culloden, um, once or twice already, but we know it's the last stand, um, of the Jacobite army. But who were the Jacobites, and you know how did they end up there in the first place? Well, I'll start with what a Jacobite isn't. There's a very common misconception that the Battle of Culloden was a battle between Scottish Highlanders, Scottish Catholic Highlanders against English Protestant redcoats. This, however, is complete nonsense. Um, esti modern estimates actually put there as being more Scots in the British army than in the Jacobites. Um, you've also got a whole regiment in the Jacobite army during the rising of English soldiers who come from the north of England. You've also got soldiers from Ireland and Wales on both sides. You've got um, European allies on both sides. In the British army, it's Germans, Dutch, and some Swiss soldiers. In the Jacobite army, you've got soldiers from France and Spain. We've even recently discovered one man from Middlesex County, Massachusetts, who was in the Jacobite army. It's also, I also mentioned that it's not Catholics versus Protestants, which is the co next common misconception. Um, you've got Catholics and Protestants fighting on both sides. In the British Army, recruiters were told not to recruit Catholics, but you got paid for however many people you took. And it's probably a case of, are you Protestant? No, I'm Catholic. No, 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 no. Are you Protestant? Yes, perfect. You get the job. In the Jacobite Army, you've got Episcopalian Protestants who may not necessarily be happy with having a Catholic king, but they did believe in the divine right of kings. And because the Catholic king was the one originally anointed as God's chosen king, then by God's law, that's the man who has to be the king. So what is a Jacobite? A Jacobite is effectively a supporter of the exiled King James Stuart. Uh, Culloden was the last battle in a series of wars between two rival houses fighting for the throne of Britain. In this case, it's the House of Stuart, 
which is the Jacobites, versus the House of Hanover, the British government army. The whole story kicks off uh, following the deposition of King James VII of Scotland and King James II of England um, for being Catholic and, more importantly, having a Catholic male heir. He's replaced during the Glorious Revolution by his um, uh, son-in-law and daughter, William and Mary. That's what kicks off the Jacobite cause. Uh, Jacobites are fighting to put King James back on the throne. There are four Jacobite rebellions in total. First, it takes place in 1689, mostly just in Scotland and in Ireland, uh, culminating in the Battle of the Boyne between James and King William. Uh, the second is a result of the ascension of King George I. Um, he takes a throne after Queen Anne, who I say to visitors is Olivia Coleman from the movie The Favourite. Um, technically next in line with the death of Queen Anne should have been King James II's uh, son, who we at Culloden refer to as James VIII and III, because that's what the Jacobites identified him as. Um, he is basically, um, he doesn't get the crown because he's Catholic. It goes to George, who is 52nd, 53rd in line for the throne, but the first Protestant. Uh, that kickstarts the second Jacobite rebellion in 1715 and the third in 1719, both of which end in Jacobite defeat. By the time we get to Culloden, it's 1745. You've got the War of Austrian Succession happening in Europe, and James VIII's son, Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, grandson of James II of England, has decided that he wants to start his rebellion. So he wants to come to Scotland, rally Jacobite support, and put his father back on the throne. Wow, I mean, the first thing is I had no idea that George I was so far down the list yeah. of, of people in line for the throne. Because that's probably a, a biased British education system, maybe, giving us the history that we need to hear. But yeah, that's, that's, that's the first thing I want to mention is I had no idea. I knew it was a bit more of a distant Protestant relation, but that's, that's a fair way out of the way, isn't it? When George came to the throne, he was not only 52nd, he had never been to Britain. He's from Germany. He's from Hanover, which was a German city-state, which is now in Germany. And he doesn't speak a word of English. But during the reign of his predecessor, Queen Anne, the Act of Settlement was passed, which meant that a Catholic could not take the throne. So the British government, the now British government, had to choose the next closest Protestant blood link, which was a descendant of James I of England, uh, who was George, the Elector of Hanover. That's, that's, that completely <clears throat> changes the, the kind of the dynamic, doesn't it? In if, from me coming coming into this episode, I, I know very little about this period of history. It's it's a few hundred years too late for me, but I, I know enough to kind of get by. But that was yeah, that's that's the, the out of all that, that's what I picked out as the most yeah for as our, the most shocking and the most altering part of it. Yeah, for the listeners, for the benefit of the listeners, James the Second of England, he is the brother of Charles the uh, Second. Both are sons of Charles the First. When Charles II dies, he has no legitimate children. So the next, the crown is passed on to his younger brother, who becomes James II. Yeah, and that's where all the kind of the problems seem to start, don't they? Because he drifts back into Catholicism, and then the idea of a Catholic on the throne becomes the most 
terrible idea ever. And then I guess this is why we're having this conversation, which is, uh, which is, I wonder if they thought that would happen. But back to Culloden specifically, what got us to that point specifically? So what, what happened in the lead up to Culloden? Like what was happening that day? So the lead up to Culloden begins just under a year beforehand. Uh, I already mentioned that the war of the Austrian succession is occurring. That's the main war that's occurring in Europe. And it actually starts with a British army defeat. It starts with a British army defeat in Flanders, the Battle of Fontenoy, uh, where a French army is able to defeat a British army led by a man called Prince William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland. He's the second uh, living son of the king who was on the throne at the time, King George II. Now, He's going to, Cumberland's going to come into our story a little bit later, but that defeat allows Bonnie Prince Charlie, Charles, to sail with a French ship from France to the west coast of, to the Western Isles of Scotland. By August of 1745, Charles is at a place called Glenfinnan, which is now, of course, famous for the viaduct that Hogwarts Express goes across in Chamber of Secrets. But there he raises his father's standard, the Stuart standard. And he's able to rally around one and a half uh, Highlanders to come fight for him. The Jacobite army is effectively started up. The fourth Jacobite rebellion has begun. They then march south, capture Edinburgh in September of 1745. Charles wins his first major battle against the British at the Battle of Prestonpans just outside the city. And then they march into England. A lot of the Jacobite War Council is hesitant to march into England. They've captured Scotland. A lot of their priority was capturing scotland there are many jacobites who want to break the act of union they want scotland to become its own sovereign state again they want a scottish monarchy and a scottish parliament back but we don't consider it a battle for scottish independence because not everyone is fighting for independence regardless charles has made his case he wants to capture the throne of of britain not just the throne of scotland they actually get as far south unopposed as derby they're only roughly 125 miles outside of London. But when they do get to Derby, they're informed they're being surrounded by three enormous British armies. Um, there's not been enough English Jacobite support. Uh, though there is some, it's not as much as Charles had promised. And the French help that Charles has also promised has not arrived yet. So the War Council are effectively telling, no, 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 we're not advancing anymore until we have this important meeting. And at their War Council on the 4th of December, uh, or in the early December 1745, the War Council effectively manages to convince Charles to turn the army and head back into Scotland. This is the start where things start to break down for Charles, and his relationship between his, himself and his War Council begins to break down so much. By the time we get to Culloden, he's refusing to listen to a lot of them. But despite being pushed back north, they cross the border back into Scotland, uh, and they do win another big battle against the British at the Battle of Falkirk Muir in January 1746. But they can't take advantage of the victory and are being pushed further north. Meanwhile, the Duke of Cumberland has been brought to Britain with his army to deal with the Jacobites. He sees these as a complete waste of his time. He sees the French army as far more severe, a much bigger threat that has to be taken care of. But nevertheless, he's been forced to take on the Jacobites. By the time we get to April of 1746, Charles has been pushed as far north as Inverness. It's his last stronghold, and more importantly, it's his last seaport. Any French help is going to arrive by sea. 
He and his army are camped around Culloden House, about four miles outside the city centre, or the town centre as it was back then. And on the 15th of April, 1746, the Jacobite army lines up ready for battle on Culloden Moor. Um, Charles is very confident for victory. Uh, God is clearly on his side. He's won every battle uh, so far. Everything seems to be going in his way. His soldiers may be thinking otherwise. They're currently on starvation rations, which is one biscuit per man a day by the time we get to um, April 1746. They haven't really slept well in a very long time. And the weather, I can only describe as being very Scottish. We've got rain, sleep, wind and cold. But Charles is still determined to fight. He is determined to win. Cumberland has been in Aberdeen and is marching eastwards to capture Inverness, following a road that runs through Culloden Moor. This is what we call a pitch battle, where one or both combatants pick the spot to fight and line up uh, before they engage each other. And Charles has got his army ready to fight against the British army on the 15th of April, which does not show up. It turns out, by absolute sheer coincidence, the 15th of April, 1746, is the Duke of Cumberland's 25th birthday. So he has effectively decided, nah, we're going to stop at about 12 miles outside of Inverness at Nairn. We are at a town called Nairn, and we are going to celebrate my birthday. We're going to take the day off. When the Jacobites discover that the British army are not coming, bearing in mind they stood out on Culloden all day, they decide to... Be, to um, have what they call that we call the night march. It's a surprise sneak attack across across country to ambush the British army when they least expect it. It's a solid plan, but if it worked, we would not be telling the story of the Battle of Culloden. The Jacobite army are having to go across country to avoid being spotted by British sentries, and they can't use torchlight because the British navy anchored in the Murray Firth, the local sea will see them moving and alert the British army. So they're going across country in the pitch black darkness, in the rain, sleet, wind and cold, and they split themselves up into two columns. The first column is comprised of Highland Scotsmen who know the terrain. The other column is comprised of everyone else. The night march is a colossal failure. The Highlanders are used to this terrain and so can advance much, much quicker than the rest of the army. The Highlanders get within striking distance of Nairn. They can see the camps, but the rest of the army isn't there. And with the element of surprise diminishing and with the sun rising, the Jacobites discover they've got no hope of launching a successful attack. So with no other option, they get the entire army, about 10, 12 miles in, to turn around and march all the way back to Culloden. The idea being is, we'll get back to camp, we'll get a little bit of rest, and then... We'll, make up, we'll decide what we do tomorrow. I guess we're going to have a battle, but if we can get enough rest, that's great. However, when they do get back to camp, and when they do start to fall asleep, they start to hear the kettle drums of the British army getting louder and louder and louder. Because not long after they turned around and started walking back, the British army started to wake up and are following them all the way towards Culloden. And nevertheless, on the 16th of April, 1746, the last pitch battle on British soil was fought. Wow. So quite a lot led to, as you say in, your, in, in the intro, one hour of, of history, really, isn't it? Like, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to ask you two questions. Do you think that if the battle had have happened on Cumberland's birthday, 
it would have gone differently. And if the night march had have been successful, do you think history would have been different? This is what I love about the Jacobite rebellions, is there are so many what-ifs. For instance, when they got to Darby and were told there were three armies surrounding them, that was enough to convince them to head back north. In actuality, those three armies did not exist. Two were too far away and one didn't exist altogether. It was information given to them by a British spy. Um, if they carried on to London, for instance, they could have taken the capital and they could have potentially won. If the Jacobite night march had worked, who, like, who knows what would have happened. My personal opinion, by the time we get to Culloden, the Jacobite army is in the worst state it could possibly be in. Like I said, their own, the soldiers are only having one biscuit a day. If they won this battle, their morale might be improved, but given the situation the war council find themselves in, and given that the British army needs a victory, I think they might not have won their next battle. Cumberland especially understood the, the severity and the issue that the Jacobites are posing. When he was following the Jacobites into Scotland, he lay siege to Carlisle Castle, which the Jacobites held at the time. And the Jacobites who were captured there were forced into really horrific conditions, perhaps a foreshadow to what happens after the battle. And that English regiment I mentioned, the Manchester regiment, they were left at Carlisle Castle and they were treated extremely harshly. Um, all the officers were executed, with nine of the senior officers, for instance, being hung, drawn and quartered. Um, Cumberland sees the Jacobites as not only a waste of his time, but he wants to a distraction. He wants to get back to the war against France. Now, I'll touch on it. I'm sure I'll be touching on this later on, but he wants to get back to the war in France as quickly as he can. So he wants to ensure that there is no threat of Jacobitism whatsoever. And if he lost the Battle of Culloden, I'm pretty sure that he and the British government would come back with full, unadulterated force to crush the Jacobites once and for all. So, so realistically, it was, and this is not dooming or damning the Jacobite cause, but it was kind of a case of if, sorry, when rather than if, the, the kind of loss get, that we yeah. got at Culloden, you know, yeah. The turning point, literally, when they turn around at Derby, that's when it starts, it changes from what, from if to when. Because like I said, they won the Battle of Falkirk, but they couldn't take advantage of the victory. They couldn't then chase the British army away or capture it. They were being pushed. They won, but they're still being pushed further north. Yeah. And Derby is a very, very far, like, it's very far away from, from Scotland, isn't it? Like, I, I live in Sheffield and Derby's below me. And, you know, me and you are pretty far away right now. So, yeah. you know, it's it's a fair old trek. Um, yeah, I think from what you from what you told me, it does seem like wh whether it was, you know, the march from Derby or Culloden itself, that it was a case of the British, the British government, the British army was just too, too strong. And they had too many reserves. Too many, too much, you know, in 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 in, in a, too many supplies, and in a sense, too many other things to do. Where it was a case of we need to get rid of this now in the most direct way possible to then get back to what we deem as important. I wouldn't necessarily say the British army was stronger. Um, certainly, they were much more in better conditions on the day of the Battle of Culloden, mm. but 
Culloden's a very interesting battle. There's not people ask me why did the battle why did the Jacobites fail at the Battle of Culloden? And there's not one reason why. It's a whole concoction of reasons. On the day of the battle, I can just give a wee bit description. Around 5,000 Jacobites are lining up. Uh, they are joined at around 11 o'clock in the morning by 8,000 British soldiers. Now, the Jacobites have been outnumbered in the past. Their first ever battle in 1689 at the Battle of Killiecrankie, the, the government army, sorry, uh, almost... Uh, was almost double the size, but the Jacobites, using their tactics, were able to rout the government forces. So, not necessarily the fact that there's more British soldiers means that the Jacobites lost. The other thing as well is to say that um, one of the misconceptions is it's swords against muskets. The Jacobites also had muskets. More muskets were actually taken off the battlefield than swords. It's just the way the armies used them is completely different. The Jacobite technique is something called the Highland Charge, this is their attack where you can you'll see it in shows like Outlander, where the whole front line of the Jacobite army, some two two and a half to three thousand soldiers, sprint across the battlefield, screaming, shouting war cries, firing muskets, swinging swords. They crash into the British army, causing chaos, panic, and death. The British army, which is used to European uh, methods of warfare, of slowly moving across the battlefield meticulously, uh, lining up and discharging your muskets at the enemy. Jacobite Highlanders are close combat fighters. They need to get to the enemy as quickly as they can so they can cut them to pieces. Um, and the Jacobite fire, fire their muskets once, maybe twice, to create a smoke screen, which they can then use the chance to get the swords out and charge through the smoke. If you can make the British army run away, even better. Take advantage of the gaps that are left within and hack and slash to pieces. There's a reason why the Jacobites have been so undefeated until we get to Culloden. So... Like I said, 8,000 British soldiers and 5,000 Jacobites. The Jacobites could not reach the position they were in beforehand and have to be further back uh, because the British army are too close, which means much of the boggy ground protecting their rear is now an obstacle in front of them. Nevertheless, they anchor themselves between two stone wall enclosures um, to protect their flanks. Um, the battle begins roughly around 12.30 with the Jacobites fire their guns, their cannons, British artillery responds, and this artillery duel carries on for 20 minutes, while Cumberland orders his cavalry to outflank the Jacobites on either side. Now, this is a majorly important aspect, because it means the second line of the Jacobite army is having to uh, be manoeuvred to deal with that oncoming assault, but it means they will not be available to support the main Highland charge if everything goes horribly wrong. The Jacobites then half an hour unleash the Highland charge, but rather than it being effectively smashing into the British army all at once, because of the boggy ground and the conditions the Jacobites are in, the Jacobites to the south on the right are moving much, much quicker than those to the north, so it's coming in at an angle. The British army also use uh, canister and grape shot, which the Jacobites aren't really accustomed to at this point, turning the cannons into massive shotguns. The British uh, infantry as well are trained to fire their muskets every 20 seconds which is very, very, very quick uh, at this time. If you try to reload to load a musket, put in the gunpowder, fit the balls in, put the musket ball in, ram it down, whilst the Jacobites are charging at you and you can see that happening, it's a terrifying thought. But nevertheless, the Jacobites do crash into the British army on the far left. And because they crash at an angle, they can easily be surrounded by the British second line. In the span of two or three minutes, 700 people are killed. 
and the Jacobites are forced to flee back across the field. In total, there are 5,000 Jacobites and 1,500 are killed. The British uh, death toll, according to them, is out of the 8,000 soldiers, 50 are killed during the battle. Yeah, that seems that seems unlikely, doesn't it? That that out of eight thousand, only fifty are killed. I say I'm assuming that that is probably a political answer more than a factually correct one. Am I right in probably thinking that? Yeah. We, we, um, we'll, never, I mean, we'll never know the full truth. What we do know is that the death toll of the British army does not include soldiers who die of their wounds after the battle. And like I mentioned, the British army desperately need a victory. And Cumberland needs to showcase just how powerful the British Army really is. I mean, they're an embarrassment at this time. They keep losing against Jacobite Highlanders in Britain, and perhaps more embarrassing, they keep losing against the French in Europe. Cumberland needs to basically showcase just how powerful the British Army really is. And he needs to prevent there from ever being any thought of future Jacobite rebellions. He needs to crush the Jacobites once and for all. Showcase just how grand the British Army is. Don't mess with us. Look what happens. It sounds like one of the worst places to be in all of human history. You've got musket and sword versus canister shot, which to me is just the most harrowing weapon, probably the you know kind of pre pre modern era weapon that there there is. Which is for for those that don't know, as as James says. It basically turns a cannon into a giant shotgun that fires hundreds of tiny projectiles into, you know, these these mass of these masses of men charging or sometimes simply marching towards the 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 enemy line. So I can't imagine a a, a worse place to find yourself on on a on a wet snowy morning. So we've already mentioned a few times that Clodden is the last pitch battle ever fought on British soil, which is a pretty big accolade. It's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we should, that should kind of ring, ring true to everyone, but it doesn't really get the kind of screen time that say, um, even, even the other great defeat of, of England at this point, which is the battle of Bannockburn or the battle of Hastings or, you know, Waterloo or Agincourt. Why do you think it doesn't get the it isn't remembered as as so as tightly as those other big battles? There are two, well, potentially three, but there are two main uh, reasons behind this. I feel that Culloden is seen as this really harrowing, upsetting, depressing defeat, um, even though, like you said, it has ended so much political turmoil but it started with Charles I during the Civil Wars. Um, in the aftermath of Culloden, like I said, Cumberland wants to crush the Jacobites once and for all. He, le he closes off access to the field and he gives the order for no quarter. So this basically means take no prisoners, execute en to anyone you come across. And you've got people who are left on the battlefield, the dead or dying are left out here for three or four days whilst the British army commits, um, they march across the field after, as the Jacobites flee, they bayonet and trample over the soul, only one, any Jacobites left lying here. They pursue the Jacobites that are fleeing on their by, on horseback to Inverness and cut down anyone they come across fleeing the field. 
it's a really, really horrible time. And in the aftermath of immediately about three or four days after the field is closed off, only then are the residents of Inverness brought up in order to bury the dead, which are still buried on the battlefield. But what Culloden is best known for and why it's solidified in history is its aftermath. What happens after Culloden, which solidifies it in popular imagination. The British government and the Br uh, British army uh, are responsible for effectively starting the dismantling of the Highland way of life. The Cumberland initiates what we call the pacification of the Highlands. It's a military occupation across Scotland to rattle out any Jacobites, arrest Jacobites and people who are helping the Jacobite cause. And effectively, if you can dem so could demonstrate what you're doing is against the Jacobites, the British army was given free range to commit atrocities across the Highlands. Murder, rape, pillage, arson, assault, um, their whole way across uh, Highland Scotland. You've also got the British government starting to systematically ban or heavily restrict certain aspects of the Highland way of life. The Act of Prescription, for instance, straight up restricts or bans Highland men from wearing tartan, wearing the kilt, playing bagpipes, carrying weapons. And this includes everything from a sword to a shinty stick, which is like a Highland version of hockey. Uh, even speaking Gaelic and gathering in groups in certain situations is banned or heavily restricted. Uh, Gaelic, for instance, you're not allowed to teach that in schools at this time. Uh, the Episcopalian Protestant faith is heavily persecuted against after Culloden. And this carries on for 40 years, these laws are in place. Right up until 1782, these things were either illegal or, straight, or heavily restricted. The only way a Highland Scottish man could get those things back and carry on doing them is if they joined the British government army and were put into Highland regiments. Now, the Highland regiments did very, very well. Many of them are sent across the world um, and are major aspects of... Uh, contributed to many major victories in British uh, military history. You've got, for instance, the famous Red Thin Line uh, during the Crimean War. I think it's the Battle of the Charged Light Brigade uh, battle. I can't remember off the top of my head. But especially in North America, you've got Highland regiments who are very quickly created, sent to America, and are responsible for helping uh, the British win Canada, for instance. Um, Simon Fraser, the master of Lovett, son of the infamous Lord Lovett, who was a Jacobite clan chief, who was executed after Culloden. He manages to turn his way around. He rallies a Highland clan regiment, which goes and fights at the Battle of Quebec in, uh, during the French and Indian War. And that victory solidifies British control against the French of Canada. During the uh, pacification of the Highlands, however, Despite the glorification that the Highland regiments might get, things back home are not great. Around 3,500 men, women and children are arrested on suspicion of being a Jacobite, with the youngest person arrested being a boy aged seven. Uh, of this 3,500, 1,500 are released, but this is in quotation marks. This is either joining the British Army, doing something which is called turning King's Evidence, standing in court and grassing on your friends to get your freedom. Uh, you've got people who... Uh, accept pardons and give large portions of their property and money away. You've got people who um, swear oaths of good behaviour in church. Um, so that's the vast majority of them. Around 900 people are transported to the colonies. Uh, this is transportation into indentured servitude. 
where you're for seven you work for seven years of hard labor usually on plantations alongside african uh enslaved people you've also got about 120 of the jacobite prisoners which are executed i've already mentioned some that were hung drawn and quartered in carlisle for instance but the last nobleman to be beheaded in england uh was a jacobite simon fraser lord lovett so i think when we think about that as like hastings it's seen as a great victory it's a turning point in the history of england uh, battles like waterloo it's napoleon's defeat and napoleon has been seen in britain at least as the the evil scourge of europe who's created all this uncertainty bannockburn is a great victory because it's one of the few battles that the scots were able to win against the english but it effectively was the one of the major turning points in the scottish wars for independence culloden although it has that um it ended that tor- turmoil because of the aftermath it's seen as a really really harrowing defeat and this is where my second group to blame comes in the victorians the victorians heavily romanticized culloden if you go into the battlefield nowadays you will see the strange bucket-shaped stone structure which is the memorial sculpture which was erected in 1881 in the late victorian era as were the famous clan headstones we don't the clan headstones the names on them are clan names which fought at culloden but they don't denote who's in the graves there's no way to tell who's buried in them but they're just victorian tourist attractions you've got books by sir walter scott like rob roy and waverley which come out which heavily romanticize the jacobite cause charles is transformed from this arrogant self uh individual who has no military experience into this charming heroic handsome but flawed hero of the Stuart cause. In Cumberland is seen as the butcher. He is the evil enemy who has come to persecute and destroy the Scottish culture. Whilst Charles is trying to save Scotland, he's the hero who ultimately, unfortunately, um, it doesn't go his way. But the Victorians love the story. They It's during the Victorian era, probably, that the term Bonnie Prince Charlie is created. tell you what and i'm sure you would agree the more history i learn about and the more i you know work within history the more i blame the victorians for everything Uh, as a medievalist i blame them for the wars of the roses the hundred years war the whole idea of courtly love so i'm absolutely not surprised that the victorians are part of the reason that culloden is in the in you know treated the way it is because they for some reason, they just took history and ran with it in a direction that they really shouldn't have done. But um, it sounds a bit like, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, it feels a little bit like this is America's Vietnam. It's it's not the cleanest. It's not based on good versus evil. It's very much, it seems very messy and brutal and violent on a level that is um quite like molecular it's you know it's it's you know I, we, we say this a lot but like you know brother against brother and things like that but like you, you mentioned at the start it's not scotland versus england or even catholic versus protestant it's it really is neighbor versus neighbor isn't it and i think it is it's not clean is it like like waterloo it's not it doesn't there's not a like a neat bow tied on the top and go that's it cool battle of hastings williams the king all sorted it's 
it's much messier than that, isn't it? People chose which side they wanted for their own unique reasons. Um, probably one of the best ways to describe, to compare the Jacobite cause. Just as nowadays in America, you've got people who tend to vote Republican or Democrat based on political factors that affect them personally. Just as up here in Scotland, people either support or don't support Scottish independence based on factors that affect them personally. The reason why I chose to become a Jacobite is probably might not be the same reason as you chose to become a Jacobite, for instance. But we're unified by the one goal that, oh, well, if I vote, if I go this way, it means that we'll both potentially get the same outcome or hopefully get the outcomes that we want to get. It's all politics. Yeah, all it politics. sounds, it is, you literally took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say that it just sounds very political. And I guess po politics has always been there, but this is, this is a much more clear kind of example of where politics gets, gets in the way of a good old fashioned war, right? Um, yeah. Awesome. So this year marks the 277th anniversary of the battle. Will there be some kind of commemorative event for it? I'm assuming there will be, uh, but yeah, I'd love to tell you what you've got planned for this anniversary. Yeah, every um, year, the two years we ha I've not done it were because of COVID, but every year around the anniversary, we have our big commemorative event. And this is usually put on by the Gallic Society of Inverness, um, where on the Saturday closest to the day of the battle, so this year it's going to be on the 15th of April, we, you get, tend to get clans, you get clan societies, you get historical societies, you get reenactment re groups, you get tour guides, you get people who are just interested in the topic. They come to Culloden, they gathering the big, almost like a big clan gathering, and they talk to each other, they share history. Um, many times, a lot of them are dressed up as um, Jacobite soldiers, usually. Um, and then they've got their big flags, their big standards. Some of them have got pipes. Some have got replica weapons. And they will march from the museum entrance along the path to the mass graves, to the commemorative uh, statue, where they then hold a um, service. And you've got all these people who have reefs, which they lay down at the cairn, the stone structure. Uh, Gaelic songs are played. Music is played. And then we all, that's usually what happens every year. It's its quite a surreal event. It's the closest you'll probably get to seeing the Battle of Culloden at the battle site. It's a its a very moving event, if you will. It's quite difficult to explain without actually going to see it. If you look at our Facebook, you'll be able to see some photographs from previous years um, at commemorative events. But we also have a series of talks which go on. Um, so this year, our talks include everything from... Uh, Soldier, British soldiers who swapped sides. We've got uh, a, an in memoriam discussion for one of the for Professor Christopher Duffy, who was uh, one of one of the most uh, well respected uh, historians on the Jacobite cause. We've also got our lead archaeologist who's planning to come up and discuss some of the recent archaeological finds. But one thing I'm particularly excited for is a project my uh, colleague has been working on called Culloden Memories. Culloden is just one hour of thousands of years worth of history, and we're hoping to tell the story of the site after the battle. So post Culloden, from the point of the battle to the modern day, to showcase how much the landscape has changed 
and we've been taking in uh, testimonials from people who'd either visited the area or lived in the area. And we've got some wonderful old photographs. There used to be an old tea room, which used to be on the battlefield, for instance. There are photographs of telephone pylons that run right alongside the Jacobite mass graves. The path through the mass graves used to be the main road to Inverness. There's photos of cars driving along it. There's a story I recently heard, and I had no idea this was a thing, of tour guides um, in the late Victorian, early 20th century who came up to the site with their groups and actually dug up the mounds to show the bodies are there before backfilling it in. We don't do that anymore. I want to point make that clear. But it's stories like that which are deeply fascinating. Um, another thing that we're doing this year, which I'm quite excited for because I'm going to be involved in, directly in working on it, is something what we call a virtual visit. So a virtual visit is basically a walking tour of Culloden, which can be done from the comfort of your home. Uh, we will be streaming a basically at particular points. We are going to uh, we're going to be streaming um, walking tours, if you will, where you can just sit at home. You uh, we take you through the battlefield. We can answer questions while the tour is going on. Um, but we've also got some really incredible. It's three hundred sixty degrees. So if you click and move your mouse, or if you're on a tablet and use your finger, you can look all around the battlefield. Um, and we've also got some of our objects which we've got in the museum, which have been digitally scanned into this tour. So if at one point we'll be talking about, I don't know, the Jacobites use these so use broadswords, here's a broadsword, and you can actually look around it and zoom in and zoom out and actually get really close deep, really close deep, closer details uh, closer looks than our visitors actually get when they see the objects in person. Those tours are currently going out on Saturdays. You can book online via our uh, website. Uh, they're currently going at Saturdays, and that's 8 a.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. GMT time. So hopefully we're hoping to accommodate to everyone around the world. If you can't visit Culloden, let Culloden come and visit you. That sounds really cool, and I will give you an opportunity at the end to make sure that everybody that, to share you know, links and websites and everything, because I want to make sure that as many people, like you said, if they can't get to Culloden, um, that Culloden comes to them, because it's clearly a very exciting piece of history, a very important piece of history, and it would be a shame for people um, to, to kind of miss out. So Culloden is obviously a very sensitive location physically, there are obviously human remains and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tourist site. It's, it's, it's important. Are there any kind of modern day pressures that risk kind of damaging it physically? And if there are, is there anything that, you know, me and, and people on the street can do to kind of help out? The National Trust for Scotland nowadays, we are the custodians of half the battlefield. So the battlefield extends much longer than people assume when they come to the site. We've got just up to and over the main road, but the actual battlefield extends another mile across the road. In the section that we care that we look after, we are in the process of trying to transform that field to as close to what it was like on that terrible day, um, whilst actively commemorating and remembering the brave men who stood for and died here fighting for their causes. The trouble with that is it still, we've only got a bit of the battlefield, which is, which is definitely in care. The rest of the battlefield is owned by private land ownership and the Forestry Commission, who um, 
And a few years ago, a series of 16 luxury houses were planned, approved and constructed on the battlefield, on the land that we don't care for, in the supposedly protected conservation zone. It was a case of the Highland Council uh, rejected the planning permission. The building people then went to the Scottish government who sent a reporter up who's not from the area, who then ultimately approved the development. But the National Trust of Scotland is not opposed to development. We're just opposed to unnecessary developments that damage the sense of place. Like Culloden is a bat ultimately a battlefield, but it is one of the most important battlefields, not just in British, but in world history. Um, and it's at risk of being built on. Like, just to say that is insane. But because that development was approved and went ahead, it opens the floodgates to countless others trying. And that's where the real danger comes from. Um, we're trying many different approaches to um, uh, actively try to preserve Culloden. One of the things that we're looking at doing is, that we looked at, is applying for UNESCO World Heritage Status. Um, in hopes that maybe that will give the site more protection. Like, you've got people who are involved in the American Revolution who fight at Culloden. Um, you've got people who, who, from across the world, uh, particularly in America and Australia, who can probably trace their lineage back to the people who fought at Culloden. Um, and... The, the idea that it can be built on is absolutely terrifying. One other way that if people want to directly help us, we've got a fundraising campaign called the Culloden Fighting Fund, uh, the money for which goes towards the care and preservation of the section of the field that we look after, whilst also going towards actively campaigning and fighting back against future building, at least future building developments that want to use the rest of the field. Um, on the subject of the Fighting Fund, um, myself and some of my colleagues next month, or whenever this goes out in April, on the 15th of April 2023, are going to be do something, doing something that can either be described as pretty dang cool, foolishly brave, or incredibly stupid. Um, we are going to recreate the Night March, that failed Jacobite attack the day before the battle, 277 years to the date that they attempted it. Uh, we're going to be marching on as close to historic route in full weather gear and Torches, I should add, um, on this close to historic route at night, down to the turning point the Jacobites turned at, and then marching all the way back to raise money towards looking after this place and to see how much the landscape truly has changed since the Jacobites have done this. This has only really ever been attempted properly once, maybe twice, so it is actually quite exciting that we are getting the chance to follow in the footsteps of both heroes and villains, effectively. Um, if you want to learn more about that, I know the um, Historians Magazine has been really, really uh, wonderful in helping to promote that. Um, so I think there's links on the Historian Magazine, Historians Magazine's Instagram about how you can learn more and help us out. Yeah, I'm, I'm fully with you on that. I think it's an absolute travesty if we allow these sites to be essentially just deleted from history. It would be an awful shame to see sites like Culloden be completely removed from from the public um from the public sphere it's it like you said i think for, for, from my own kind of context point of view it cannot be understated how important essentially hanover versus stewart would later become in a sense that it birthed the british empire 
Um, and at, at this point, the British Empire is 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 vast, but it's it's nowhere near on the scale that it would be, you know, just a few decades later, going into the 20th century, where it reached its zenith after the First World War. Um, so yeah, I, I'm fully fully with you on a personal and professional level. Yeah. And as you say, James, in the Historians Magazine newsletter, which you can sign up to via our Instagram website, etc., there is a link to the Fighting Fund. Um, and yeah, it's um, it's a worthy cause at the very least. We've actually got some of my colleagues are actually practicing the part of the market right now as we're recording this. Um, but I just want to add the severity of the risk that development has because we've only got half the bat just under half the battlefield. We don't know what is on the other side. We don't know what archaeological evidence lives that sits is still there. We don't know if there are any mass graves on the other side of the road. We don't know how far the battle lines truly go. We don't even know where the Duke of Cumberland, the winner of the Battle of Culloden, physically stood. Like These are all things that we don't know of, and if it's built on, we may never get the chance to discover that. Which, which is just a, like you said, it would just be a massive shame. Um, and it's something that can be avoided. Um, so, yeah, I think if there are ways and means we can help, um, then people absolutely should do. Awesome. So just to kind of bring this whole thing around, I've got three hopefully fairly simple questions for you that usually have the longest answers. Um, the first one will be, what's one interesting thing about Culloden or the Jacobite Risings in general that you wish people knew? Whether it's an interesting fact, a tidbit, you know, a, a, another common misconception. Um, yeah, what would what would you like people to know? I might go with something that I kind of alluded to during my, should we call it a rant about developments, um, is individuals who take part in this rising are then directly involved in the American Revolution. Now, there's two particular individuals who are most famous for this. Um, the one who's directly involved is a man called Hugh Mercer. Um, Hugh Mercer fights at Culloden in the Jacobite army. He then goes on the run, and I believe it's in 1748, he emigrates to North America. Um, when the French and Indian War kicks off, he's joined the British army, and he's befriended someone who... He's got a little bit of contribution to American history. His name is George Washington. And when the American colonies revolt against British rule, Mercer joins the Patriot Army alongside George. He, I, he's at the crossing of the Delaware because he's then at the Battle of, Trent, Battle of Trenton as a general. And he is then killed at the Battle of Princeton, leading American forces. And Mercer County in New Jersey is named after Hugh Mercer. I believe there's a street in New York named after him. But I only know that because they make mention of it in Hamilton. But that's yeah, so There is a reference to a Jacobite, which is in the hit musical Hamilton. The other famous one who's involved is Flora MacDonald. Now, people probably know more about her. She is the famous Jacobite heroine who sails Bonnie Prince Charlie across the sea to the Isle of Skye uh, during his famous flight across the Highlands in the aftermath of Culloden. Um, it's all so heavily romantic. They probably fell in love in the boat and then they had a very, very emotional parting of ways. That's what the Victorians claim. Flora was not a Jacobite. She was effectively made to do so by her stepfather, uh, Clan Chief MacDonald, who is ruling, who's living in the Outer Hebrides. When 
a local settlement which previously held Charles was destroyed by British forces. Flora's stepfather goes, get him the heck out of here before he causes us trouble. So he arranges safe passage for Flora MacDonald and her Irish maid Betty Burke to sail to the Isle of Skye. Betty Burke is Bonnie Prince Charlie in drag, dressed up as a woman to escape British capture. Um, and they, she does sail Charles across the sea to Skye, where they part. Um, she's then uh, captured by British forces, spends time in the Tower of London, where she becomes a bit of a local celebrity. Even the Duke of Cumberland's older brother, the father of the future George III, Frederick, Prince of Wales, actually pays for a visit when she's in prison. But after um, uh, public pressure, she is released, sails with her husband to America, lives in North Carolina, and during the American Revolution, she actually rallies Highland support living there for the British crown. And when the colonies win against the British, she emigrates back to Scotland, spends the rest of her life in the Isle of Skye, where she's now buried. So that's examples of individuals who take part in this rising who are directly involved with the revolution. But what I love about the Jacobites is because they're slap bang in the middle of the 18th century, you've got connections either side. So we've touched on after Culloden, but before Culloden, um, you've got pirates in the Caribbean who are Jacobites. And perhaps the most famous of these um, is Steed Bonnet, uh, the gentleman pirate who that comedy show Our Flag Means Death is about. Uh, he's basically a pirate who, um, he's very wealthy, he's got a loving family, loving uh, wife, he has a very rich plantation business in the Bahamas, and then he has a midlife crisis and becomes a pirate and sails a black beard. He is eventually captured by uh, uh, British forces and is hanged in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, as a pirate. But there are two accounts of his Jacobite, potential Jacobitism. One is a prisoner, uh, one of who sailed with Bonnet, claiming that he toasted the health of King James. Now, when I talk about toasting the health, if you ever see people raising their glasses, clinking it and toasting to the king, Jacobites would do that. They pass their glass over a bowl of water. They are not toasting to the health of King George in London, but to the king across the water. King James across the English Channel in Europe. So there's an account of Steve Bonnet doing that. But he also renames his ship from the Revenge to the Royal James. And realistically... The only reason why a British sailor, particularly after the second Jacobite rising, would do that is if they had Jacobite sympathies. So we've got Golden Age pirates and American revolutionaries who are all Jacobites. I'm not going to lie. I think that was my favorite answer <laughs> to that kind of question I've had so far. That was fantastic. I just kept being like, yeah. Yeah, and and then who? Yeah, the I mean, you had me at George Washington. To be fair, that shows, like you said, the the global reach of the Jacobite cause. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Ten out of ten. Um, Eleven out of ten for that answer. That was that it's was like fantastic. Your, it's like your favorite superheroes meet up in a movie. <laughs> it it absolutely was. It was like the yeah, like the extended universe, but it actually goes well. Like it's actually entertaining. Yeah, awesome. So. To finish off, we always ask the same two questions at the end. Uh, and the first one is, if you, and this may be a silly question for me to ask you, but if you could go back in time, where would you go and why? 
Right, let's try and deviate from the Jacobites because I've spoken about it too much because I don't want to go back to the Jacobites. It's a horrible period of history to live in. Um, as well as working at Culloden, I also volunteer and I worked for a wee bit at a local uh, museum, a local birthplace museum for a famous Victorian Scot uh, close to Culloden called the Hugh Miller Birthplace Museum. Hugh Miller was a famous Scottish folklorist and geologist, famous for discovering uh, prehistoric fossil fish that date to over 350 million years old. I myself am a bit of a fossil fanatic. I quite like collecting fossils, uh, which is what drew me to volunteering at this museum. But Miller lived at a time during the uh, early to mid-Victorian, early to mid-19th uh, century, when you've got this wonderful era of natural history where people are discovering so many amazing things uh, and creating these wonderful collections that you can see in the Natural History Museum in London today. Um, and they're coming up with all these wonderful theories um, to try and tie what they are finding. This is pre-Origin um, of Species, finding, discovering what they're finding and linking it to scripture to the book of genesis to try and explain what they've got miller for example he was a evangelical christian but he felt that his um fossil discoveries which prove the earth is far older than what the book of genesis was saying um doesn't necessarily um contradict the uh, scripture but can help elite help uh, better understanding the word of god he for instance, is subscribed to the idea that the Earth was not created in six days, but six distinct geological eras, starting with creation and destruction, and uh, starting with creation, ending destruction, and the life forms becoming more and more advanced until we get to man. And I love those wonderful theories, um, and I love that idea of discovery. So that particular point in history, when people are discovering all these wonderful things and coming up with these theories, that's where I'd like to visit. Somewhere that's not in the middle of a Again. war between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Another great answer. Another great answer again, James. That's um, yeah. I think I'm not going to lie. I was expecting the Battle of Culloden, but I think you've given a fantastic answer there. Um, and then finally, to wrap up what has been a very, very fun interview for me is if you could bring one person from history all the way through to 2023, who would you bring, and why would you bring them? I think I'm going to cheat a little bit here in that I'm going to choose a legendary character. I'd choose King Arthur, but there's one particular reason why. My colleagues and I, we like to have our little historical debates, and the current one going on at the moment is where is the round table? Now, I claim, I joke, I claim that it's in Penrith because there is the earthworks, which are clearly called Arthur's Round Table. My friend disagrees and says, no, James, it's in Winchester Cathedral because I've seen it. It's there. But then my other friend goes, actually, we've got a, I've, there's a book out which claims that it's actually in Stirling in Scotland. Whilst my friend uh, claims, no, 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 it's in Germany. So I want to bring him back and ask him, where the heck is the round table? <laughs> I like how pragmatic you've gone with that. <laughs> That's, yeah, just to settle an argument, Arthur. Can you just let me know where the table is? That, I think, again, a great answer. Like, you know, bringing, bringing someone that may or may not have existed through, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I think that would Once be... Once we've got that answer, he can go right back. That's yeah, he can, can go back to wherever wherever he's from, whatever time period, whatever place. 
Um, yeah, yeah, great, great answer. It's the first legendary answer I've had so far. So yeah, lots of firsts in this one. But um, honestly, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to come on this. It's been an, an absolute blast for me. I've genuinely learned a lot. So I appreciate that. Um, as always, I will give you the floor for as long as you need to plug as many things as possible, your own personal stuff. And I'm, I'm assuming for yourself, more importantly, um, your, your work. But yeah, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. If you're interested in coming to Culloden to learn more about the history, we are open seven days a week. At the moment, we're open uh, nine o'clock till four o'clock. Uh, keep up to date with uh, keep an eye on our Facebook and on our website www.nts as in National Trust Scotland .org.uk for any changes to opening times. If you're interested in coming on a battlefield tour, they are included with our premium tickets. Uh, these can either be booked online uh, through our website, or if there are any spaces available on the day, uh, you can sign up. You can get onto one of them there. I would recommend pre-booking tickets first. But if you're unable to come on a battlefield tour, your regular standard ticket also gets you entry onto one of our rooftop talks where you can learn more about the history of the battle in a nice, short, condensed way. Um, if you're interested in stuff around the anniversary, we've got uh, in-person talks and live stream discussions, uh, all of which can be booked on our website. Just go to www.nts.org.uk, uh, search for Culloden, and on our page, just click events, and that will take you to our Eventbrite page. We also on our Eventbrite page, you can also sign up for our virtual visits. Uh, these are our online 360 tours that I spoke of earlier. If you want to give us a hand with the night march, if you go onto our Facebook and find uh, posts about the night march, you can find links to our Just Giving page where you can give us a wee little donation to go towards looking after the incredible location that is Culloden Battlefield. Personally, if you want to follow me for more fossil or Scottish history based trivia, you can find me on Instagram at that tall Jacobite. That's that underscore tall underscore Jacobite. And I think, if I remember off the top of my head, that is everything. Oh, if other ways to help us look after Culloden, as always, become a member of the National Trust for Scotland, uh, gets you entry to so many wonderful locations, whilst in turn allowing us to carry on the incredible work uh, that we do, not just at Culloden, but across uh, Scotland itself. If you want to learn more, again, go on to our website, www.nts.org.uk, and click the Join Us button. Otherwise, if you sign up for a membership in person at a property, that property gets a little bit of a bonus for every new member we sign up. Fantastic. And for those that want to know, to get a little bit more of James's work, James has written several times for the Historians magazine. You can find his work on our website, which is www.nts.org.uk thehistoriansmagazine.com. Um, James has written about pirates and not shockingly at all, Scottish history. Uh, and they're all absolutely great. I know I'm biased, but all 10 out of 10 articles. Again, James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it has been, like I said, it's been a genuine pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. I hope like me, you've learned lots and you were on the edge of your seat talking, listening to uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie and Drag, George Washington and all that good stuff. Uh, as always, make sure to sign up to our newsletter for all of the latest Historians Magazine news. And yeah, we will speak to you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me, Chris.